passage this morning is Matthew 26, verses 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him, and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. As Lissy and Kyle mentioned, we are beginning a new series on vertical habits. The habits, the behaviors, which keep us in rhythm with God. And the first one we're going to begin with is the, ver the vertical habit, I'm sorry. Sounds simple, right? I'm sorry. Now, I know I'm dating myself when I bring this up, but if you grew up if you're an adolescent or older in the 70s, you're very familiar with what was the biggest grossing movie in 1970. It's called Love Story. Some of you may already be familiar with it, even if you weren't even born then, because it's such a, a famous movie. And the premise of the movie is that this uh, rich, preppy kid at Harvard meets this working-class musician girl at a different school. They fall in love. His parents don't approve. She gives up her dream of becoming a musician in Paris. He gives up his connection to the family who disown him. They struggle together. They, uh, she ends up dying. And then at the very end of the story, there's amb an ambiguous piece. And the famous line, the iconic line that came out of that story is the phrase, love means never having to say you're sorry. Love means never having to say you're sorry. And it's said twice. It's said at the beginning of the movie where uh, the two, the couple, Jennifer and Oliver, argue with one another and Jennifer comes back after Oliver apologizes and says, love means never having to say you're sorry. And it's said at the end of the movie where uh, Oliver's father comes back to him and says, sorry for not being there with you, sorry for not walking this journey with you. And Oliver responds with the saying, love means never having to say you're sorry, and then he walks off. And you're left with the question, is that relationship restored or not? And it's a total tearjerker from beginning to end. Everyone who watched that movie was crying all the way through it. But that iconic statement, love means never having to say you're sorry. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Is that true? What does the scripture say about that? What do we learn from Peter and Peter's habits about that? And if you heard the passage today, you see that we actually don't hear Peter say, I'm sorry, 
But in fact, what I'm gonna, uh, the premise I'm gonna make here is that, in fact, Peter is living out, I'm sorry. In fact, we're gonna look at this story, we're gonna go back a little bit, so have your Bibles ready, we're gonna go forward a little bit, but we're gonna look at this story and how it impacts Peter and how he actually lives out the process of I'm sorry. I sorry, I'm sorry is not less than words, but it is certainly more than just words. So in this particular account that we read here today, we see an intensifying pressure on Peter. First of all, there's a servant girl who speaks directly to Peter, just one-on-one -on -one saying, you know that guy, right? You know Jesus. And he says to her, no, I don't. And then it gets ramped up. The intensity of the question gets ramped up because it's no longer a servant girl to Peter directly. The second, next, second incident is a servant girl to the crowd around Peter saying, hey, he's one of them, isn't he? Isn't he one of them? And so the intensity, the pressure of the crowd is brought into the situation. And then in the third incident, it's the crowd itself saying, hey, you've got an accent like a Galilean. Aren't you one of him too? So it's the crowd itself that's saying to Peter, aren't you one of them? So one-on-one -on -one servant girl. Servant girl to crowd. Crowd to Peter. The intensity builds up. And there's an opportunity for Peter to give a public affirmation and loyalty to Jesus. To make a public statement of his commitment to Jesus. And it's ironic because all of us, I hope, pray for those opportunities in our workplace, in our lives. We pray for the opportunity to be able to proclaim the hope within us. And here Peter's given one of those chances and he denies it. He rejects it. He betrays Jesus three times. And in fact, his denial intensifies as well. In the first incidence, we see that he simply says with words, no, I, I don't know him. I have nothing to do with him. In the second instance, he says with an oath. He swears on an oath. And that would have been an oath to the Father, to Yahweh. Ironically saying, I swear to Yahweh the Father, to God the Father, that I do not know God the Son. And then in the third time, he not only swears an oath to the Father, he says, and if this is not true, if I am not telling the truth, may curses rain down upon me. And, and really, isn't that the right response? If you deny the Son to the Father, shouldn't curses rain down upon you? So, Ironically, as he's denying that, and as he's picking, uh, swearing an oath, and as he's saying, if this, isn't, if this is not true, if, if I really know this person, may I be condemned? Ironically, in the midst of that, he's asking for the right response to be put upon him. And we see what happens here, that, that Peter's personal safety is threatened by his public loyalty to Jesus. Now, have you ever betrayed Jesus in that way? Do you know that? Do you know what it's like perhaps not to be threatened with physical harm, but do you know what it's like to be looked at as if you're, you're a little odd? And in that case, maybe deny your connection to Jesus. Do, to be considered a little bit intellectually unrigorous because you put your faith in Jesus. So you deny or you downplay or you minimize your connection to Jesus. Have you ever publicly disowned publicly being disloyal to Jesus? Have you ever betrayed him because you thought your emotional or your friendship or your, even your physical safety might be threatened? Or perhaps have you ever person, has your personal comfort been threatened in private loyalty to Jesus? Have you ever thought, you know what, 
I would prefer to go onto that website rather than move to a different site. I would prefer to gossip or slander or say something mean than I would to bite my tongue. I would prefer uh, to perhaps cheat or, or, or manipulate or fudge rather than be scrupulous or honest. Have you betrayed Jesus privately? Have you betrayed Jesus publicly? And most of us, I think, would have to say that like Peter, we have. And we see then in verse 75 what Jesus' response to that is, he wept bitterly. And it's interesting here, and if we go to Luke versus uh, the same account in Luke, because it's important, I think, to see exactly what's going on here. It's not just that the, uh, the crow uh, the cock crows three times and Jesus respond, uh, Peter realizes that Jesus' prediction that he would betray him comes true. What's actually going on here is that Jesus looks at him. Let me read uh, Luke, uh, Luke verse 61 and 62. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and whipped, wept. Uh, bitterly. So in the midst of his own trial, in the midst of his arrest, in the midst of being dragged off, in the midst of all the chaos that's going on for Jesus, Jesus hears the cock crow and looks for Peter and makes eye contact with Peter. Jesus searches, searches out and connects one-on-one -on -one with Peter. And Peter knows at that moment when he gets the gaze, when he receives the gaze of Jesus, he knows that he's been a phony that his promises of being faithful are all just talk. He knows that he's messed it up. He knows that he's betrayed his friend. And worse than that, that look that he gets from Jesus means that he knows that Jesus knows that he's betrayed him. Have you ever had that look from someone, someone that you love perhaps? Have you ever been in a party and you took along with you maybe a friend that you'd known for a long time, that, it, that you'd grown up with, but you were in a new crowd and you didn't, uh, you, you, you maybe felt a little bit like you were trying to fit in and perhaps you said things, you said, oh, yeah, they're not that bright, they're not that smart, I don't really know. I, maybe you, you ran them down in some way and then you turn around and you saw them standing behind you and they saw what you'd heard and you, you feel awful inside. You feel terrible and you know that you know that they feel worse than you feel. You know that you've betrayed them. You, you feel bad even feeling bad for yourself. And you, you realize that what you've done is, is almost unredeemable. That that person looking at you has been completely betrayed. And in that context, it would be very right for them to call down curses upon you. I don't want to be your friend anymore. Or maybe if it's in a relationship, I don't want to be your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your partner or your wife or your spouse anymore. I feel like I've been completely betrayed. And it's interesting that this passage that we have with Jesus uh, confronting Peter with that look happens just before Judas betrays Jesus. And these two things are side by side. And in the case of Judas, Judas actually goes to, realizes he's done something wrong. He actually says in chapter 27 of Matthew, right after this, I have sinned and I have shed innocent blood. He knows that he's messed up, just like Peter knows he's messed up. He says, I've betrayed Jesus and I can't make it right and I'm a lost cause. 
and Judas goes and commits suicide. Now, I'm not wanting to make any comment about suicide. I just want to look at Judas here. This is not a general comment about suicide. This is only a comment about Judas and what's going on for Judas at this time. And you can see that Judas is saying, in a sense, I am beyond my own capacity for redemption. I betray Jesus. I can't make it right. I am a lost cause. And this is the word that's actually used here in uh, the text is remorse or intense remorse. And he's basically saying, I betray Jesus. I can't make it right. I'm a lost cause. And they're all right and they're all true statements in a sense. The problem that's going on here is that remorse is still about Judas. It's still all about him. His faith in himself has indeed failed. In that case at the party, if you turn around and you say, I can't restore this relationship, I can't make it right, I betrayed my friend, I can't make it right, I've destroyed the relationship, the relationship is beyond my capacity to restore it, and I feel so bad about that, because I can't fix it, I can't make it right, I can't pay that debt that's owed. If I get stuck in remorse, then it leads me to believe that there's something completely unredeemable and unsolvable and un, that, that my, I, bec, I develop a sense of worthlessness about myself. And I'm sure that's where Peter went initially. I'm sure that his initial reaction when he wept bitterly was to say, I betray Jesus. I can't make it right. I am a lost cause here. I'm sure he goes to remorse, but he quickly moves on from that. Sorry doesn't mean saying, I am worthless and I quit. It means saying, I've hurt someone and I want to turn. I want to repent. I want to make it right. I need forgiveness. So it's like saying, I betrayed, not I betrayed Jesus, not I can't make it right, not I'm a lost cause, but I betrayed Jesus. I can't make it right, but Jesus can. I'm a lost cause, but Jesus isn't. Repentance is actually saying it's not about me, it's about the one I love. Now, in the case of a relationship, in the case of someone that you still love, in the case of someone that you've heard in that, say, party context, when you, you, you've done something to betray them, which is terrible and horrible, and you say, uh, I, I, I still love her, I still want to be with her, this relationship is still my truth, but I've damaged it beyond repair. In those contexts, we tend to think of a quid pro quo situation. Well, I do terrible things to them sometimes, and they do terrible things to me. As long as they balance out, then roughly speaking, then everything's okay. But that's not what's going on in our vertical relationships, and that's not what should be going on in our horizontal relationships either. We bring forgiveness when we are the receiver of people who have hurt us. We bring forgiveness. How many times do we bring forgiveness? 70 times 7. We keep forgiving. We keep forgiving. We keep giving that break. grace. And it's not about quid pro quo. It's not about have I forgiven them as many times as they've forgiven me. We give that dependence and grace to the other person. And in this case, of course, Jesus has done nothing wrong has never done anything wrong, and all the forgiveness is on him, and he's the only one that can pay down the, the debt. So all we can bring is our 
I'm sorry attitude, our desire to change, our, our desire to turn. And why is that so hard? Why is it so hard for us to recognize that we're broken, that we hurt, uh, that we hurt other people, that we live in a state where we don't do things uh, that are completely faithful to the other person, that we, aren't, uh, we, that we do betray friendships and marriages in small ways all the time, that we do betray Jesus all the time. Why is it difficult to live in that place of brokenness? And I think to answer that question, we can look here at the example for Peter, but going back a little bit. You see, just before this incident where Jesus looks at Peter after he's betrayed Jesus three times, Jesus and Peter and Jesus and the disciples had a conversation. And it's in Luke 22, verses 28 to 32. And I'm going to read that to you now. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, that's Peter, Simon Peter, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, isn't that really interesting? We have this sort of juxtaposition here. You see, Jesus is acknowledging that Peter has built his, that Peter and the other disciples have stood by him in these trials. They've done a good job of being faithful. And then he goes on to say, I have prayed for you, Peter Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. When you have repented, strengthen your brothers. So what's going on there? How is it that he prays for him not to fail? And clearly, he's going to fail. And yet he doesn't say, you failed. He says, when you've turned back, go on and strengthen your brothers. Go on and feed my sheep, in a sense. Go on and build the church. Go on and do what you've been called to do, Peter. Go on and be what is in your heart to be, Peter. So what he's really saying is Jesus prays for a faith not to fail when you fail. And we start to see what's going wrong with Peter up until this point. You see, Peter's been building his faith on a marshmallow, not a rock. He's been building on, on his own capacity to be faithful. And he sits there and he says to Jesus, I will never let you down. I will fight for you. I will, ne I will never ever be one of those people that betrays you. And yet here he is betraying him three times. And Jesus isn't saying that that betrayal would be not having faith. What he says is not turning back, not repenting, not recognizing that Jesus' faithfulness and capacity to forgive. That would be failure. That would be failure. So Peter is learning not to build his faith his sense of his faith on a marshmallow, his ability to hold it together, his ability to be faithful, his ability to meet the expectations of God. He's saying, no, no, build it on a rock, build it on Jesus. Build it on Jesus' capacity to forgive. Jesus' capacity to love and come towards you. And Jesus said, I am praying for you that your faith will survive this betrayal and that you will repent you will be sorry, you will complete that act of being sorry, of saying I'm sorry, 
In other words, I am praying that you won't fail when you fail, that you will recognize that your faith rests on me and not on you. And this is the difference between Judas and Peter. Both of them recognize that they can't fix their brokenness. One of them is left in despair and hopelessness. The other one says, I can't fix my brokenness, but Jesus can. One of them says, I can't fix my brokenness, therefore I'm worthless. The other one says, I can't fix my brokenness, but I am so valuable to Jesus that he died for me and he can fix it. I am not worthless, I am valuable. I am not beyond the capacity for redemption. I, I am the recipient of grace and love. And we need to complete this story of I'm sorry by looking at what happens at the end. See, after Jesus betrays, after Peter betrays Jesus three times, Jesus is crucified. Jesus does, uh, uh, Jesus is buried and is resurrected. And then the disciples go out fishing. They're demoralized and they go out fishing. And as they're out fishing, they're not catching anything. And Jesus calls out to them, the risen Lord cries out to them from the beach and says, put your net over the other side. And they put it out and they catch a big load of fish. And Peter, of course, recognizes this happened once before. That's Jesus, way back in the beginning of the gospel when Jesus first called them to be disciples. So Peter, demonstrating his response of turning back, of moving towards, of not running away from that look, but running towards that look, jumps out of the beach, uh, jumps out of the boat and runs to the beach. And on the beach, Jesus has a fire and he's cooking some fish and they eat. And then this is the dialogue that happens. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus said, he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to, them, to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, it would be tempting to hear this as, well, Peter messed up, and Jesus said, prove to me that you love me by doing these things. But that is not the right way to read or hear this. This is not about earning, but about restoration. You see, Peter's great desire, Peter's great hope, great, Peter's expression to Jesus all through the Gospels is, I want to serve you, I want to love you. And, and, and Jesus has promised him, has given him this great gift of saying, yes, I'm going to build my church upon you. Yes, you are going to be one of the disciples on whom the coming kingdom is going to be dependent on. You are going to be one of the people who I used to build my church. And so, of course, after that betrayal, Peter might think, no, no, I've ruined it. I've blown it. I've done it. I've lost my role. I'm no longer capable of being what I was to Jesus. It's all done and finished. And Jesus says, no, do you love me? Yes, I love you. I messed up. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but, but my heart is one. I love you. Then 
I restore you. Do you love me? Yes, I restore you. Do you love me? I restore you. See, it's not about earning, but about rescue. Rescue from marshmallow, where we fall into a sticky mess, and at very best they're not stable if we try to build our faith on our perception that our faith is capable of sustaining us, to faith in the faithfulness of Jesus, in the capacity of Jesus, the promise of Jesus to forgive. So when we say I sorry, when we say we're sorry, we are resting on Jesus and his grace. We are declaring our dependence on Jesus and his grace. Peter has now learned that following Jesus is not built on his own faith, but on Jesus' faithfulness. And it depends on Jesus' prayer for him that he won't fail, that he will repent. Don't fail when you fail, that he will repent and turn back when he betrays Jesus, that he will recognize that it depends on Jesus, not on him. So the question that we asked at the beginning, have you ever had that look from someone that you love, that look from someone that you've betrayed, that look from someone who you have done wrong to, is the wrong question. Have you ever had that look from someone that loves you so much that they are willing to die for you, that they're willing to do whatever it takes to forgive you, that they are willing to go to the ends of the earth to restore relationship with you? We started by asking the question, is it true that love means not having to say, you're sorry? But the answer is not that love means not having to say you're sorry. Love means that it's safe to say you're sorry. That it's safe to repent and turn back to the one who looks at us, not with condemnation, but with a heart and a promise and the power and the prayer to restore us. The vertical practice of I'm sorry depends ultimately on our understanding and our dependence on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, help us not to see this vertical habit as something which we should do, not just another thing to put on a list of chores. Help it to be a rhythm that is driven by the fact that we are loved by you, driven by the fact that you are faithful to us, driven by the fact that you pray for our faithfulness, driven by the fact that you want us to be faithful in our unfaithfulness, Faith, put it, have our dependence in you. Lord, help us to see that look from you in our failure as one of restoration. Help us to realize that we are loved and that sorry just reconnects us to that love. And help us to do the work of repentance, of turning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.